Here's a new article by Keaton Weiss. Why is Noam Chomsky punching left with corporate media talking points? Keaton is going to come on this show to talk about this article tomorrow, so I thought I'd give you a little bit of an advance showing. Noam Chomsky's recent appearance on the Bad Faith podcast has been fodder for debate among leftists as Election Day draws near. Hosts Brianna Joy Gray and Virgil Texas challenged him on his support for Joe Biden, claiming that progressives pledging their unconditional allegiance to Democrats in general elections has led to decades-long rightward shift in Democratic politics and American politics more broadly. Chomsky fired back by accusing them of helping Trump win and that they were making a terrible choice by considering boycotting the Democratic ticket in the hopes of forcing the Democratic Party to court the left vote more aggressively in future elections. More recently, Chomsky gave an interview to Salon in which David Mashotra asked him, How do you respond to the irresponsible leftist purity that discourages voting for Biden because of his limitations as a candidate and the troubling aspects of his record? This is me talking. I would ask David Mishotra how he responds to completely selling out your morals and values to vote for a corporate candidate just because you think that you can push him left. And I'd ask David how did his head get so far up his ass. I'd also ask Chomsky that. Chomsky replied, my position is to vote against Trump. In our two-party system, there is a technical fact that if you want to vote against Trump, you have to push the lever for the Democrats. If you don't push the lever for the Democrats, you are assisting Trump. We can argue about a lot of things, but not arithmetic. Ooh, that is so devious. Let's begin where he's flatly wrong. As a matter of simple arithmetic, one is not assisting Trump unless one votes for Trump. There is an argument to be made that in the case of a voter preferring Biden to Trump, but say Hawkins to Biden, that one's choice to vote for Hawkins over Biden disadvantages Biden and in effect helps Trump. Fair enough. But that formulation is more complicated than a mere arithmetic problem, contrary to Chomsky's categorization. Because in order to claim that a vote for Hawkins aids Trump, he would have to prove that a green vote would otherwise be a blue one were the green candidate not on the ballot. Again, this is a point that can be argued for or against, but it is not, as Chomsky asserts, a mere question of mathematics. There's quite a bit more to it than that. Also, Chomsky repeatedly accused Brianna and Virgil of helping Trump, even when challenged on this point. Brianna retorted, Professor, I wouldn't argue that I am helping Trump. I would argue that if the Democratic Party, if Joe Biden as a candidate, were unwilling to concede these very common sense concessions, that would help him in electoral context and would also be the right thing to do, that it is he who would be enabling Trump, and that framing the onus as decidedly on the voter is wrongly doing a kind of voter shaming that continues to have the effect of suppressing the vote among people who are, I think, very valiantly asking for a better world. This is obviously true, and so this is yet another point on which Chomsky's position is badly misguided. As a matter of objective political reality, if a voter makes a demand that a candidate refuses to accept, and as a result, the voter doesn't support the candidate, then at the very least, the voter and the candidate are equally responsible for not making a deal. 
If you write to the corporate headquarters of McDonald's and tell them that you're willing to patronize their restaurants if they start offering veggie burgers on their menu and they refuse and you respond by telling them that you won't eat there because they decline to accommodate your request, would it be at all reasonable of them to write you back a nasty letter accusing you of helping Burger King dominate the fast food market? As absurd an example as this is, it's exactly the case Chomsky is making. Just as in this example, McDonald's made a conscious choice to forego your business by not adding veggie burgers to the menu. Joe Biden is consciously choosing to forego a certain amount of left support by choosing not to accommodate the core demands of left voters. Perhaps his decision makes sense from his perspective. Perhaps he feels he'd rather bet on the moderate conservative vote than the progressive vote, and he fears that by courting leftists, he'd scare off the moderates and suffer a net loss overall, just as McDonald's would probably lose money on veggie burgers. Right or wrong, though, the point is that Joe Biden is choosing to decline Brianna Joy Gray's support just as much as she's choosing not to support Joe Biden's candidacy. And so, as Brianna put it, to place the onus decidedly on the voter is ridiculous and wrong. Now, this next point is the one I'm going to bring up tomorrow in tomorrow's show when Keaton is on. This is the part where he says that Chomsky is right when he isn't actually right. Now, let's consider where he's correct. I happen to agree with Chomsky's opinion that hoping to influence the Democratic Party years down the road is a foolish reason to withhold your vote from Joe Biden in November of 2020. We've already run this experiment. Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election, and mainstream Democrats have it in their heads, largely thanks to corporate media propaganda, that her defeat was attributable to disaffected leftists who either stayed home, voted green, or wrote in Bernie. This is me talking. This is the place where Keaton says that we were not able to move the comfy Dems to budge. In effect, he's saying that they called our bluff. Even if we were strong enough, and we may have been last time, the Bernie or Busters, to sabotage Hillary, that doesn't mean that the Democrats came around this time. In a non-COVID environment, I think it's pretty safe to say that we could have derailed Biden, too. And Keaton's argument is, if it came up again and we had a corporate candidate again running against a true progressive, that the same thing would happen. The comfy Dems would still nominate the corporate Democrat. Aided and abetted, of course, by the military intelligence complex, the CIA and so forth, Hollywood, and the rest of the deep state cabal. I still think that enough of us true leftists were not so gutless that we could still use electoral leverage to scare the comfy Dems. Unlike DNC leadership, the rank-and-file comfy Dems really, really hate losing to Republicans, and I think we could eventually force the issue if enough of us would just stick together. But of course, we would need more help from lefty pundits to do that, to get out and around the mainstream media embargo. Keaton makes the point that we are getting bolder, we are increasingly willing to assert ourselves, but how many people are saying what Brianna Joy Gray is saying? How many people are even saying what Keaton is saying? The true hard-ass leftists are pretty few in number, even this time. And that's on us people. We've got to win more and more disaffected leftists and populists of any stripe to our side. Back to the story. And how did these Democrats respond? By nominating Joe Biden. 
There's no real evidence to suggest that leftists who refuse to support the party's centrist candidates in general elections have had any success in pulling the Democratic Party to the left by doing so. If anything, at this rate, a Biden defeat might just yield a Manchin-Lieberman ticket in 2024. The party made clear in 2016 and again in 2020 that they would much rather lose to Republicans than allow leftists to take over their party. This is me again. I think, Keaton, you're getting confused between the party rank and file, the comfy Democrat suburbanites, and the leadership of the DNC. Clearly, the DNC leadership would rather lose than allow a leftist to lead their party, but I don't think that's as true of the rank and file comfy Dems. You know, the assholes we argue with on our Facebook feeds. So I'll read that sentence again. The party made clear in 2016 and again in 2020 that they would much rather lose to Republicans than allow leftists to take over their party. If you accept this is truth, which I know most of you do, then how can you possibly argue that sabotaging their general election candidates will force the party bosses to surrender control of their institution or snap the party faithful out of their morning Joe-induced hypnosis? Simply put, leftists cannot leverage their votes against a party that would rather lose than have left support be the deciding factor in their victories. And again, Keaton, it's not fair to conflate the two forces, the leaders and the rank and file. The leaders, of course, you're right about them, but you're not right about the rank and file. I think we can snap the party faithful out of their morning Joe-induced hypnosis, and I think it's a cop-out not to keep trying. Your conclusion that leftists cannot leverage their votes against a party that would rather lose, I think you're not right about that. I don't think the party rank and file would rather lose. I just think it's the leaders who would rather lose. And now, on to the thrilling conclusion. But more important than where Chomsky is right and where he's wrong is that on balance, Chomsky's 2020 punditry and commentary has been unhelpful to the progressive cause. Consider why these conversations about how to vote are happening in the first place. Progressives are torturing themselves with this question in 2020 because they have no candidate on the ballot. If we had a candidate we felt strongly about supporting and who stood a chance to win, then the decision of who to vote for would be an obvious one and we wouldn't be wasting countless hours debating it amongst ourselves. The reason we're stuck in such a miserable dilemma is because our movement has not yet amassed the strength it needs to be a viable electoral force in a national election. And one of the reasons, Keaton, is because we haven't been willing to hold their feet to the fire and refuse to vote en masse, 80% of us rather than 20% of us, for a corporate candidate. If 80% of leftists simply refuse to vote for a corporate candidate, we would have the viable force we need. Keaton, there's a reason we don't have the strength that we need that you're not addressing. What we need to realize is that we need the lefty pundits to help lead us in this battle. And we also need progressive politicians to lead us in this battle. We can't let people like David Dole, Cenk Uger, Kyle Kalinske, Crystal Ball, and any of the others off the hook. We need them relentlessly to tell us never to vote for corporatists, no matter who, and they haven't been willing to do that. Even you haven't been willing to do that. Anything you say, Keaton, that weakens the resolve of lefty pundits to tell us to hold firm is a bad thing. If lefty pundits were to stick together and organize the lefty voters to never vote for corporatists, 
then the sneering, snarling, condescending blue dog Dems would have to come around. They would then be brought to heel. And if we bring them to heel, they would then in turn bring the DNC leadership to heel. So the point you're about to make is that some of us think that the reason we haven't been able to advance our causes because we haven't leveraged our votes enough. I don't think you've disproven that. But what you say about building our institutions is right. Back to the story. The left is operating from such a position of weakness right now, not because we haven't leveraged our votes enough, nor because we are too pure. The reason the left has no power is very simple. We haven't yet built it. We haven't built large, robust institutions of our own outside the Democratic Party that wield sufficient influence in the political system to compete in a presidential race. The biggest reason we haven't built the kind of institutional left power we so desperately need is largely because we've always lacked the confidence to do so. We've been bullied by decades of Cold War propaganda into bashfulness about our anti-capitalist disposition, lest we be called socialists or communists. We know the society around us has been brainwashed by frontier fantasies of rugged individualism, and so we've always been afraid to proclaim too straightforwardly that we must retire such a brutal and uncivilized ideal and instead promote a politics aimed at providing for the common good. In a country as jingoistic and nationalistic as ours, we felt uneasy about critiquing America's militaristic foreign policy as harshly as we'd have liked to. In a culture that fetishizes development and economic growth, we've been hesitant to make a full-throated case for environmentalism and conservationism for fear of being mocked as tree-huggers. Now, however, thanks in large part to the Bernie Sanders campaigns of 2016 and 2020, the American left has found its spine again. We are no longer placating the liberal class with mealy-mouthed doublespeak about how we're not against capitalism, we just want to rein in the excesses of capitalism. Sounds like Elizabeth Warren. Or how we're not against war, only against stupid wars. We finally built up the courage to articulate our ideas on our own terms, whether the establishment narrative managers like it or not, and to begin to build the institutional power necessary to fight for those ideas on the national stage. Our revolution, Sunrise Movement, a swelling DSA membership, Movement for a People's Party, etc. So this is me talking. I would say this to Nick Brana as well as to you, Keaton, that Our Revolution, Sunrise Movement, swelling DSA membership, Movement for a People's Party, all have an Achilles heel. None of these movements is willing enough to refuse to vote for corporatist candidates under any circumstances. If you really want to say that we have a spine, I think you'd have to say that. No corporatists, no matter who. I still submit, and will continue to say this until proven wrong, that electoral leverage is what we really need to use to prove to the comfy Dems that we have a spine. We keep coming right up to the brink, and then we waffle. We hedge. We cave in. The fact that so many of us listen to sheepdogs like Chomsky and Bernie himself and vote for corporatists like Biden or Hillary shows that we don't really have a spine. Back to the story. So while Chomsky is right to push back on the idea that leveraging our votes will help move the Democratic Party to the left, no he's not. 
His chiding and shaming of progressives who refuse to fall in line behind Joe Biden serves only to weaken the conviction of the progressive movement. This is me again. If that's all it takes to weaken the conviction of the progressive movement, it's not really a progressive movement. Back to Keaton. And inhibit its ability to break from the Democratic Party and build its own organizational power bases. Furthermore, his assumption that leftists who refuse to vote blue are aiding and abetting Trump's re-election does nothing but manufacture consent. Cheers to those who get the reference, and shame on those who don't. If you've been following this show, you get it. For the establishment narrative that irresponsible left purity is to blame for the rise of right-wing demagoguery. Surely Chomsky himself knows this to be untrue. He understands, as does any committed leftist, that predatory capitalism, soulless neoliberalism, and feckless centrism are what ushered in this era of resurgent right-wing populism. So why does he so unquestioningly accept the interviewer's premise that our current political problems are the result of stubborn progressives' refusal to check their purity? Even if he wanted to advocate for voting Biden, he should have, at the very least, challenged the framing of Mishotra's question. Instead, by internalizing and regurgitating this tired and ahistorical argument that the Trump presidency is the product of petulant leftists prioritizing purity over practicality, he's causing the progressive movement to second-guess itself just as it has finally managed to kick that habit. And that, Keaton, I think, is a really strong argument that Chomsky is trying to be a sheepdog. I've said in the past that he's merely a coward, but I, I can't say that anymore, based on this point that you just made. In the example that you use with Gabriel Riquetti of Mirabeau, I'd say for sure that he's controlled opposition in that same vein. He's working for the king behind our backs. So this next paragraph you could say about Gabriel Riquetti, just as well as about Chomsky. It should go without saying that Chomsky deserves a world of credit for having been a great mentor to the left, just like Gabriel Riquetti was. Which makes it all the more frustrating to see him browbeat his own protégé with hackneyed corporate media talking points about how leftists' unbending commitment to the very values he instilled in them will be to blame should Trump win re-election. He is a thought leader of the progressive movement, and he spent a lifetime earning his claim to that title. As such, he certainly has every right to support whichever candidate he wants and to argue on that candidate's behalf, but to do so in such cheap fashion as to parrot the most insipid blue MAGA Twitter bile is miles beneath him and leagues beneath his legacy. Unless, of course, the king is paying him under the table. This is the same man who said in 2016 that both political parties have moved to the right during the neoliberal period. Today's new Democrats are pretty much what used to be called moderate Republicans. And even though he supported Hillary Clinton in the general election that year, the point remains that a man of his stature and intellect ought to expect some portion of his acolytes to interpret the above quote as licensed to reject lesser evilism as an electoral strategy. He shouldn't be surprised, much less upset, by the realization that many of his admirers took his words to heart. Same with Bernie supporters. And most importantly, as someone who literally wrote the book on propagandist news outlets and their poisonous effect on our politics, he shouldn't be insulting his own readers with arguments lifted straight from corporate media teleprompters.
And that is a very good point, one which will thump you on the back for tomorrow. When I say we, I'm always thinking about the regular followers of this show, the regular crew, those of you who are kind enough to almost daily comment underneath the videos I post. I always imagine how you'll react to things as I'm saying it. Some of you have even accused Keaton of being a sheepdog, so it will be interesting to see your reactions to this video and also to tomorrow's. One thing's for damn sure, the regular listeners and viewers of this show are not going to be pushed around by a sheepdog like Noam Chomsky or anyone else. 